Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Mark is one of the Gospels. A Gospel is, um, it means good news, but it's really a shorthand for um, four, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is where we get the stories about Jesus. We read about his life and his teachings, and each author comes at Jesus' life and teachings from a slightly different angle. And so reading through all of them, um, it's really interesting because you get each author's perspective. Even though each author is carried along by the Holy Spirit, you get these different layerings. Mark's gospel is very fast-paced. We're in chapter 4 right now, but if you compare it to other gospels, we're about two years into Jesus' ministry. So that gives you a sense of how quickly Mark just kind of um, pushes past things that he thinks are non-essential and is just giving us the Coles notes. This is kind of like the, the gospel for dummies or the complete idiot's guide to Jesus. You know, some of these little, uh, you know, what was the thing in high school you used to get when you didn't want to read the whole book? And you, what's that? Oh, yeah, that's the Coles notes. Yeah, yeah the Coles notes. Right. Um, so this is kind of like the Coles notes gospel. In fact, some early uh, church historians have looked at the prevalence through which the, um, some of the major church leaders in the second century, so between 100 and 200 AD, how often they quoted from the Gospels. And Mark gets quoted from very, very little. And it was because the early church fathers, while they certainly saw it as inspired, they just thought, oh, Mark is so sparse. There's so little here. Matthew, Luke, and John give a lot more detail. So they kind of defaulted to quoting from them. So Mark's Gospel is really um, punchy. It's sharp. It's fast-paced. And we're actually getting today to the first, and it's, there's very few of these in Mark, the first extended teaching of Jesus. We've been hearing in Mark, Mark alludes to the fact that Jesus went around teaching, but he doesn't really tell us what he was teaching. You have to go into the other Gospels for that. But here we get the longest extended teaching of Jesus. So I'm going to read it. Uh, sorry, in Mark. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. It's not going to be on the screen, so you can just listen, take it in. If you have a Bible, um, you can follow along. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out and, and set it out on the lake. And while all the people were sorry, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow seed. And As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the 12, the 12 apostles, his closest disciples, and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving may be ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. 
And some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. This is an important parable. Mark wants to make that clear. He devotes a lot of space to this. Jesus says this is important. In verse 13, he says, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Jesus says this story is foundational to understanding where this entire thing is going. If you don't get this, everything else that comes later is going to be lost on you. So let's talk about first about what a parable is. A parable is probably a word you only hear in general if you go to church. Uh, it's a kind of a churchy Christianese word, and it's actually a very basic word. The word comes from a, a conjoining of, of two roots. The word in Greek is parabole. It's a compound word from para, which means to come alongside or to compare something, and balo, which means to throw. Remember ekbalo, the treasures of the kingdom, when I threw stuff at you guys and you loved it? That was balo, ekbalo. This is parabolo. This is throwing beside each other a comparison. It's just taking two things and contrasting them and comparing them in order to gain a better understanding of what's going on. So a parable isn't primarily designed to be something tremendously confusing or complicated. It's kind of the opposite. It's kind of trying to take a pretty rich idea and packaging it in a way that people can kind of access and hold on to and say, oh, I kind of get that. And the comparison draws out from the listener um, insights into the simple truth, which is actually quite profound. So a parable is not designed to be complex. It's designed to be accessible to the average person. Now, what you have here is a really phenomenal teaching by Jesus and has a lot to teach everybody in this room individually. It has a lot for us collectively as a community. It really helps to When we understand this parable, it can kind of reframe our entire understanding of the Christian life and our expectations of what our lives are going to look like as we follow Jesus into his kingdom call. Remember the context? Jesus has become immensely popular. The crowds are crushing him. He has to set out in boats now um, on the water for two reasons. Number one, they're going to crush him to death if he doesn't. But number two, there's so many people. He has to use the water as a kind of amphitheater because there's so many people that couldn't hear him properly if you were to just be on the hillside anymore. So he's tremendously popular. The religious leaders are kind of have moved into trying to figure out a way to kill him because they're convinced that he's committing some kind of blasphemy. And they're convinced, as we saw last week, that the power by which he's doing miracles, no one is doubting his miracles. Everyone can see it. His teaching is phenomenal. But the religious leaders are 
concerned, well, more than concerned, they're angry because he is posturing as if he's something more than a prophet. He's posturing as if he has the very authority of God, as if he's God come in human form. That's blasphemy to a first century Jewish, Jewish mindset. There's one God, so they're saying, well, he must, he's doing these miracles, but it must be from the power of Satan. And last week we talked about Jesus calling that out and saying, nope, that doesn't actually make any sense. Why would Satan drive out Satan? So he's immensely popular. We're about two years or so into his ministry. And Mark records this teaching where Jesus starts the teaching with the Greek word akeo, which means pay attention, listen up. Right? This is when you're talking to your kids and they're not really listening. And then you have to say, kind of raise your voice and say, okay, I'm actually serious. You need to listen to this. Listening time, let's go. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. That's what Jesus is doing here. We're going to skip down to verse 14 where he explains the parable. He says, the farmer sows the word. So Jesus is the sower. This is a parable about Jesus and his ministry and what he is doing. And he's sowing God's truth. But in a more specific way, he's sowing what Matthew calls the gospel of the kingdom, the, the, the word of the kingdom. This kingdom idea that, um, is, the, remember the gospel, manger, uh, cross, crown, that God has come to rescue his people? to do for his people what they couldn't do by atoning for their sin and then ultimately sacrificing himself. But then he starts talking about this, this allusions to the fact that um, he's going to be a new temple that's going to be raised up on the third day. So he's bringing this good news message, this gospel of the kingdom, and he's like a farmer who is scattering seed. And he starts verse 15 by saying, some people are like seed along the path. So this is a story about how people receive that truth, how they respond to Jesus and his message. He says, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. So this is the first person, the first archetype, if you will, the first kind of soil that we get, which at first doesn't seem like it's a soil. It just seems like, well, there's seed and then a bird comes up. And Jesus says, that was Satan snatching it away. But the reason why it's easy for a bird to snatch the seed away is because the ground is very, very hard. There's no ability for the seed to actually go in. So the first soil, by implication, is hard ground. It's a hardened heart. And Jesus says, this is like a farmer that sowed seeds on that ground. It has no ability to penetrate the soil. It's hard. And then Satan comes, a bird comes, metaphorically, and snatches up a seed. In Matthew's telling of, the gospel, uh, telling of this thing, he says, you know, this, this represents people who hear, but they don't understand. When they're listening to Jesus' teachings, they're like, I kind of came for the miracles. I don't really get his teaching. I don't get what this is about. There's just a real eyes glaze over. I know that doesn't happen here on Sunday mornings. People are always dialed in. But sometimes that happened to Jesus, if you can, if you can believe it. And these are people who out of ignorance or hardening of the heart, just can't hear and access the word of God. And Jesus says, and alludes to the fact that there's spiritual warfare at work here, that one of the things that Satan is trying to do and delights in doing is taking away the seed, the good news of the kingdom, God's word and truth, before it has an ability to take root. Satan wants to disrupt and to remove the word of God in our life. So there's kind of two things happening here. One is the hardness of the soil, the person's heart, which doesn't allow for the seed to penetrate. But that gives Satan an end, Jesus says. And Satan will 
dive right in there, just like a bird swooping for food. Think about seagulls on the shoreline. Once they see even a crumb, they will fight each other for it. Satan wants to disrupt our ability to even have the word of God sit on our minds and on our hearts for a little bit. So he snatches it away. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, how often in our own lives individually, as a community, I mean, think about, think about the dominant, not the only ways, but the dominant ways that we permit the word of God to come at us. Um, personal devotions, personal Bible study of some kind, group Bible study, small groups, Sunday morning preaching, maybe, maybe listening uh, to a podcast or a program on the radio. Be attentive over the next few weeks how often, um, how well-intended you are to follow through on these things and how often distractions come up which make you say, oh, I didn't get to it today. It'll be tomorrow. It'll be next week. It'll be next month. That is the primary way Satan, um, I shouldn't say it, maybe not the primary way. That's one key way Satan disrupts spiritual growth in our life by just interfering with our ability to gain access to God's truth. He'll let a lot of things go. He'll give us a lot of line in a lot of other places in our life. But when we're trying to take in God's word, he will bring all kinds of distractions into it. I, it never fails when I, I mean, this morning was a little bit more challenging because Heather's away at the um, women's retreat. But even for our own family, it's amazing how much more difficult it is to get to church on Sunday morning than on any other day of the week, even though logistically the challenges aren't really any different. But there just seems to be, or the amount of fights between our kids that happen on Sunday morning, um, and even in my own life when I look and say, oh, I definitely want to get into the Word today, and outside of sermon prep and kind of my professional Bible study, I want to do it personally, and the amount of things that just come up, or even just distractions out of my own heart that happen, but we need to be aware that is a really, really dangerous place to give those place um, to give those disruptions and those distractions a lot of leeway in our life. So the first person is a hardened heart that Satan. It's very easy for Satan to snatch away the fruit of the kingdom, seed of the kingdom. Person number two is shallow ground. He says other people are like seeds sown on rocky places. They hear the word and they receive it with joy. They're like, yes, I love what I'm hearing. I get this. I want to be a part of this. I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to become a Christian. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So Jesus says, when I'm preaching, when the truth of the kingdom is penetrating hearts, there are people who receive it, but they're kind of like flash in the pan. For a month or for a season, it's like, this is awesome. I'm loving it. Uh, So much momentum being built in my life. I'm on fire for God. But then once trouble or persecution comes, once the decision to follow Jesus has kind of real-world negative consequences, they, they tap out. They throw in the towel. They say, Ooh, yeah, this isn't for me. I loved the Jesus thing that was like the promises of God, the blessings, the rescue, the deliverance, um, the anointing, the freedom. I love that stuff, and I want that stuff. I don't like the take up your cross and follow me. And I'm finding, as a Christian, I'm now being passed over for promotions at work because I'm actually operating out of a sense of high integrity and other people are talking behind my back, doing things 
and they're getting ahead. And I kind of want to get ahead too, so maybe I need to kind of take it easy on this. Or this is awesome, but now I'm getting, my reputation is taking a hit. Maybe some friends in high school, people that I used to hang out with. I was part of the crowd, but now, now that I'm kind of like out for Jesus and there's been some pushback, ooh, yeah, like I don't, I, I, I thought Jesus would enhance my social standing, not like diminish it. Yeah, I got to rethink this thing. This is people who start strong, and this represents people who grow in their faith as long as it's convenient to grow in their faith. And we all have those seasons in our life. And almost all of us started in our walk with Christ like that, where we have these strong experiences of God, and we're like, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and it's awesome, and we're growing. And persecution or trouble because we're a Christian, tends not to set in right away. So we're like, this is awesome, this is awesome, this is great. But then we hit that wall. We have that conversation. We experience that pushback. We move through that disappointment. And we say now, oh, do I actually really want to do this? Because underneath what we thought is, Jesus is just going to keep my life getting progressively better. Jesus is the path to spiritual upward mobility, now, there are many cases where that will be the case, where be, you'll experience lots of blessings of God and growth and tremendous fruitfulness in your life. But Jesus also says, you need to take up your cross if you're going to follow me. You have to be willing to die to yourself and your own ambitions. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world, but in this world, you're going to have trouble. Following me will be a twinning of tremendous blessing, but at times tremendous hardship, because you will be asked to sacrifice And I've seen this many times. I saw it a lot when I was in youth ministry and after a decade of being a pastor, you see this all the time of people who are so excited about coming to know Jesus. But then once it costs them something, once it begins to really eat into their time, how they use their time, their energy, their finances, it begins to cost them in terms of opportunities. It begins to cost them in terms of relationships. These are people who say, "Uh, yeah, you know what? No thanks. Maybe I'm not going to totally, like, I'm not going to, like, disavow Christianity. Christianity, Jesus is still my homeboy. This is great. I'll go to church once in a while. But, yeah, I'm not going to press into this thing, really. It's not kind of what I thought. And I kind of want my life to be, I want to be happy. And I want to be fulfilled. And I feel like, ooh, this is not delivering to me that instant fulfillment. This isn't easy. And it's costing me something. And I thought God was kind of like a sky genie who was just going to pour blessing onto my life. And I'm finding out, oh, God is actually God. He's sovereign. He's authoritative. And he's making demands of me. And I don't know if I want someone making demands of me. I'm not interested in being a Christian if it's going to cause me more trouble and persecution. And Jesus says they have no root, so they get scorched when the sun comes up. When the the environment's cool and nice and ideal, they grow no problem. But when things get difficult, the sun comes up, they get scorched because they have no root. And Jesus there certainly um, echoing and referring back to the Old Testament idea that how do we stay rooted in God? It's, It's in and through his word. They're not grounded in the word. They were grounded in experience. They were grounded in a certain constellation of as long as I'm happy and I'm experiencing certain things, I'm moving forward. But they didn't actually set the roots down deep And as one commentator said, it's in this soil that we learn that an emotional receptivity to the gospel 
even good intention, without a strong foundation, putting your roots deep into the word won't enable someone to stand when Christianity becomes costly. And it eventually will become costly throughout your life in different spheres and different seasons. But Christianity will cost us. The third person, the third soil, is thorny ground. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, they hear the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Jesus says this ground is kind of good ground, like it's good soil. It, um, there's a, the seed of the kingdom takes root and it grows, but there's another presence in that person's heart and life. There's, a compete, there's, a, there's another um, organism competing for the soil energy. It, there's, there's, a, there's this unseen competition happening underneath and above the soil. And Jesus says there's three things that in this person's life choke out the fruitfulness of the kingdom in their life. The worries of this life. Maybe even legitimate worries, right? Worries like Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. Uh, what are we going to eat? What shall we drink? What are we going to wear? Um, what am I going to do with my life? What should I do in this situation? How am I going to pay these bills? Or what's the next step to take in terms of my career? Or what school should I go to? Those are perfectly valid questions. But Jesus says, by focusing on those, some people, the life of the kingdom gets choked out. Even good, um, good questions and good concerns can become a um, choking out worry. Deceitfulness of wealth. Paul writing the Timothy, Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The scripture again and again says, having money is not a sin. Having lots of money and being very, very wealthy is not a sin. But the love of money, trusting in money, making money central, and using money for our own ends to make our lives better... That is the surest way that something good like money is going to be turned into something um, self-destructive. Notice Paul warns Timothy. He doesn't say the love, of, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. People who love money, they're just needling other people. They just cause so much harm in the world. They totally do in a lot of cases. But the first thing is they actually pierce themselves. They are stabbing themselves. They're hurting themselves. Again, not... Um, it's not money that's the problem, it's the love of money. It's saying, of course I want God in my life, of course Jesus, yes, I want to be saved, I want to be Christian, of course, but I also kind of, more than all of that, I, I want to have wealth, because wealth is the thing that's actually going to save me out of where I am. Wealth is the thing that's going to deliver me happiness. Wealth is the thing that's going to deliver me freedom. And as you should know, if we're, as we should know if we're self-reflective, everybody in this room, a lot of us are making more money now and have access to more wealth now than we did 10 or 20 years ago. But we're not correlationally more happy or fulfilled. Money is just, money's just a thing. Wealth can be deceitful. That's why Paul, in a few verses later, he says to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world. So here's the command to all of us. We are rich globally, in the context of the globe, in this present world, not to be arrogant, 
Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And lastly, Jesus says, sometimes it's just the desire for other things. And you can fill in the blank what that is for some people. Popularity, um, kind of getting a spouse or achieving a certain thing career-wise or a certain lifestyle goal. There's just something that you're like, oh, I, 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 I need God in my life, of course, but I also need this thing to be happy. And you might not say this because you know it's not the right answer, but you are going to move heaven and earth to get that thing. God for sure, absolutely not. Yep, God, God's part of my spiritual life. But this is the thing that I'm going to move heaven and earth to get. Because I do believe that without that thing, I can't be happy. So that's going to be the thing. Romans 8, 5 says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. What us in our unregenerate state think, oh, that's the thing that's going to bring me happiness. If I get that person, if I get that opportunity, if I get that lifestyle, then then I'll be delivered from all of my inner demons. Then I'll be healed. Then I'll be saved. And Jesus says, what that desire does over time is it chokes out the work of the kingdom. Because he says in uh, several times in the Gospels, you know, you can't serve two masters. He uses the example of God and money, but you can fill in the blank of anything place of money. You can't serve God and something else. You can't have split allegiance. God has to come first, Otherwise, what's going to happen is God will get choked out of your life. And his peace and joy and grace and power will, 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 get, will get choked out. And notice, that the, notice the agrarian metaphor here. Seeds growing, the thorns are growing, and it's happening slowly. The choking out of the kingdom happens slowly. It's not that the seeds are sprouting up and then all of a sudden the thorns jump out of the soil and clamp down. It happens very slowly. And that's why it's very important for us as Christians to be examining our heart consistently and saying, are there places where maybe a few months ago it didn't seem like anything was being choked out in my relationship with God, but this, I don't know, this this idea or this impulse or this desire seems to have been gaining steam and to begin to learn how to confront that prayerfully with God. Jesus says, if anyone's going to come after me, you must deny himself and take up your cross. That's the foundation for beginning the Christian life. God's going to bring lots of good things into your life, um, but worry can't take center stage. Wealth can't take center stage. Your desire for whatever you think you need can't take center stage. Jesus says, this is what you do. A follower of mine is going to be someone who seeks first my kingdom and my righteousness. And then all the other things will be given to you as well in their proper place. So you make me number one. That's a third soil. Fourth soil is good soil. Jesus says, others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, they accept it, and they produce a crop 30, 60, and even 100 times what was sown. What makes this soil good? Do you ever think about that? He just says it's good soil. But what makes it good? How come the seed can get into the soil and then produce a crop um, 
that is just massive in some cases. Well, you can understand why this soil is good by reflecting on why the other soils weren't good, right? This soil is good because unlike the first soil, it's soft. It's not hard. This is a person with a soft heart. They're someone who's teachable. They're open. They listen expectantly. They open up their Bibles. They come on Sunday. They're, when they engage the word of God, it's not just mechanical, yeah, yeah, I've heard this, I get it, whatever. They're saying, Lord, speak to me through this. Convict me. Put something on my heart that I need to respond to. This is soft ground. It's easy for the seed to find, um, to find depth here. And that's the second thing. This, this soil is deep. It's not shallow. It's not like a layer of dirt, but then all these rocks underneath where the roots can't go down. This is deep soil. This is soil that is reflective and is careful and isn't um, superficial. It's looking, and again, when the difficult times come, instead of saying, oh yeah, this isn't for me, this is a person who presses into God more and saying, I don't like this. This is hard. I, maybe in some cases I feel betrayed, God. I thought my life was going to be easy. But they continue to press into God. And, and in that, God begins to develop a depth in them. And lastly, this soil is good because it's clear of, of weeds or of thorns. And if you know anything about gardening, that means also this is a soil that has been consistently cleared and is being cleared consistently. Because you have to keep weeding all the time. You don't just weed once and you're like, I weeded, I'm done, and now just good things will come up from my garden. Um, this is soil where the person is saying, is continually looking for weeds and thorns and saying, yeah, this needs to be extracted. And they're trying to get the weeds out by the roots. They're not saying, oh, there's a weed, let's press it down and pretend it's not there. And they're not picking at the weeds. They're trying to go right to the root. They're careful in how they um, are processing their spiritual journey. They're saying, hmm, I'm angry. I'm noticing I'm losing my temper a lot in these contexts. They're not saying, I guess I just shouldn't be angry. I'll just try and be not angry. They're saying, my anger is coming from somewhere. And so through godly counsel, through going to friends, but through prayer, through um, studying scripture and inviting God in saying, God, Holy Spirit, root this out. I'm noticing this and I don't want this weed to get any bigger because I don't want it to choke out your life in me. And then when Jesus says there's this crop that happens, what's he referring to? What's the crop of the kingdom? And I think that's really just a catch-all phrase that holds together a lot of things. It's, it's, it's the harvest of people who bring other people to Christ, people who deepen other people's relationship with Christ. It's when the kingdom takes, takes root and, it's, and it leads to a crop, it's, uh, it's practical holiness. It's that this person, this soil, reflects a growing level of Christ-like maturity and character. It's the fruit of generosity. Romans 15 talks about you know, one of the fruits of being a Christian is that you are increasingly open and able to share material things, those um, wealth and material things, uh, it's not that you don't care about them, but you're, just not, you're not beholden to them. You, you know how to distribute them and share generously. The fruit of the Spirit, um, Colossians 1, the fruit of good works, the fruit of praise and thanksgiving. So it's not one thing we're talking about. We're talking about when Jesus says the, the, the crop of the kingdom, the harvest of the kingdom, he's saying a life that brings glory to God and testifies to the power of the gospel. That's what is supposed to be coming up. That's what God intends to come up. So those are the four types of soil. So here are some application reflections as we close 
on kind of what we do with this extended teaching. Jesus says this is very foundational. If you don't get this, you're not going to get anything else. So start here. Those who have ears to hear, listen. Listen up. This is really important. Number one, God desires to grow his kingdom. Notice in the parable, the farmer scatters everywhere. The farmer is promiscuous in his um, use of trying to get crops to come up. He doesn't overly examine all the different spaces and saying, oh, he, 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 he doesn't take certain soil out of the running right away. He doesn't say, oh, nothing will ever grow here. There's no even point scattering here. The farmer scatters everywhere. And we have this picture uh, of Jesus as this person and as a God come in human form who is just generously throwing his truth all over. It's just trying to get it in every nook and cranny anywhere because he wants to grow his kingdom. And he's not being careful and saying, oh, I only want to grow it here. Like, this is good. This is how I want to do it. He's just saying, I want my kingdom to happen all over. And I'm just throwing it everywhere. He's not being careful. And I think that speaks to the heart of God that says, God is, in all kinds of ways, just throwing out his truth and his beauty for people, just hoping that it finds good soil. Number two, notice that the kingdom comes through smallness. And it comes through truth. A lot of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God, which is about the inbreaking of God's authority, his reign and rule, a kingdom presumes a king, a king has an army, right? Why doesn't Jesus use parables of the king who comes conquering on a chariot, or the kingdom of God is like a um, king who uh, storms a, a battlement or cr- crashes through the door? Those are very, very rarely the kinds of metaphors Jesus uses for the kingdom. He says the kingdom is like a farmer who sows seeds. Is there anything less threatening than a seed? Is there anything seemingly as um, powerless and small and weak as a seed at first glance? We're going to change the world. How are we going to do it? We're going to scatter seeds all over. Eh, That's cute, but let's get real. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom comes in smallness and it comes through truth. You can look at an acorn and say, that's, a, that's pretty insignificant. What could ever come from this? But an acorn, if it finds good soil, if it has the right conditions, it can grow up to become an, an, a, a huge, mighty oak tree, which can produce more acorns, which could theoretically, under the right conditions, um, cover the entire world in oak trees. From one little acorn, that could happen. It seems insignificant. It seems like it wouldn't never amount to anything. And Jesus says that's how the kingdom's going to break in almost all the time into our lives in ways that seem very small. But it happens through truth. The kingdom breaks in as the proclamation of the gospel gets received. That's why, again, Satan will spend so much time and energy trying to prevent you from hearing and accessing the word of God, creating distractions. Uh, Another thing, the kingdom unfolds very, very slowly. Seeds don't grow overnight. And that's a real encouragement because for some of us, we thought, well, if God's in my life and the Spirit's at work, then I should just be like leveling up in the Christian life pretty consistently and I should notice it. Like it should be like, oh, wow, I just leveled up in my personal holiness. Wow, I can totally tell a difference from five days ago. I read the Bible three times, I prayed two times, and now I can feel the difference. No. Jesus says, that's not the way you're going to experience growth in the kingdom. If I have this plant, and I plant a seed, and I stare at it for 10 hours, I'm not going to be like, whoa, 
I saw it grow. There it is, right there. Do you see it? Did anyone else see that? It's right there. It's not gonna, it looks like nothing is happening. But that doesn't mean that nothing's happening. The root structure, something is happening underneath. Something is happening in an invisible way that will lead to growth. But growth is slow. Now, notice that seeds don't grow overnight, but often weeds do. And that's important to note because sometimes as Christians, we are um, enticed or seduced into ideas, sometimes perpetuated within the Christian culture, sometimes by certain ministries or um, certain people that when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to come in a rapid way and just a way that is just nonstop momentum, like a juggernaut. And it's just going to, it's going to come in power. And, what, and the, in, the, in, the inference of that is by coming in power, the kingdom is going to come rapidly. And you're going to see massive changes in your life. Sometimes that happens, but that tends not to be the basic pattern that Jesus is pointing us to. The kingdom comes slowly. But weeds happen quickly. The kingdom comes in stages. The kingdom of God takes patience to cultivate and to learn how to walk in it. But ways of walking that are ante- um, that are resistant to the kingdom, those things can take root real quick. In the Christian church, whether it's, well, I don't know, in, in a lot of places, I feel like we as Christians love shortcuts. We want silver bullets. We want the one book, the one prayer, the one practice that will just expedite our holiness or at least get us to a place we want to be in our lives. We, we love fast. We love, we're seduced by the idea of quick or instant or easy but I remember one person who said, we have to check our desire for fast um, as it relates to our growth in Christ. Because the fastest growing cells in the human body are cancerous. And we wouldn't look at that and say, oh, wow, look at that. Look at the speed at which that cell is multiplying. That's such a good thing. Sometimes speed kills and the kingdom comes slowly. Another thing that is just, I think... It's kind of discouraging, but also encouraging. The kingdom of God has like a 75% failure rate. You notice that? There's four kinds of ground, and only in one ground does it actually take root and lead to a long-term crop. The kingdom looks like it fails 75% of the time. This is Jesus being like, in my ministry, remember, Jesus is reflecting on his own ministry. Forget about us. In my ministry, I'm scattering seed. I'm talking to thousands, tens of thousands of people have this massive influence. I can do miracles. I can teach in a way that people are like, I've never seen or heard teaching like this. And Jesus says, I'm going to be batting about 250. One out of four are going to respond favorably and in a long-term way fruitfully to what I have to say. And that was Jesus. Remember, the disciples are trying to figure, I mean, if you read through the Gospels, this is the parable that unlocks why all these different reactions that people have? Why, why do people have all these different reactions to Jesus? You'd think, theoretically, if, if there was a God and God came down in human form and he could reveal things that have never been revealed and he could do things that have never been done and he could heal and, and you know, you put this um, fantastic picture in your mind and your imagination of what this kind of great, benevolent, wonderful God would be, wouldn't everybody just be like, there is a God and he's a, he or she or it is amazing and we're just going to listen to this God and that's not the reaction. Jesus says that happens about one out of every four times. There's long-term fruit. And notice, it's not because the problem isn't on the end of the seed. Jesus doesn't say, I'm like a sower, and I give good seed to some people, 
But some people I kind of secretly punished by giving like low grade seed. I didn't really expect it to go anywhere or they weren't worthy of getting like full, like the good stuff. So I gave the good stuff over here, but no, the farmer sows seeds. It's all good. What makes the difference is the soil that it lands on. That is the crucial point. And Jesus says about 25% of the time it's fruitful. That sets our expectations for what we should expect to encounter in the Christian life. In a lot of ways, Jesus is teaching us that success in the kingdom of God is going to look like 25% of the time. This seems to be kind of working in a sense. We're not even Jesus. We don't have access to miracles. And so when we share the gospel with our friends, as we attempt to do things for God, with God, as we attempt to cultivate, um, as we attempt to do ministry as a church, we shouldn't be surprised if a lot of the time that doesn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere for Jesus. One out of four people responded in a favorable way. There's some people here. I know there are friends and parents here who have said, maybe if I had done this differently, my child would be serving God or doing this, or if I had been a better friend or if I had said this. And I think introspection is good and reflecting on how we could grow and, and, and maybe confessing past failures is important. But ultimately, this is also a parable that says, at the end of the day, people are responsible for their standing before God. God has given out good seed enough that if a person had good soil, they could respond and it could be fruitful. And I think that should encourage us, especially for those of us who carry guilt, because we think if we just had all the right things in place, then this should just work. And Jesus says, that didn't happen for me. So what kind of soil are we? What kind of soil are you? This is a parable about four kinds of soil, but there's really only ultimately two kinds of soil. The soil that rejects the seed, whether short or long term, and one that embraces it and says, I want this seed to go deep and to take root and to be fruitful. How do we cultivate good soil in our life? Because that is kind of the challenge of this parable. What kind of seed are you? What kind of seed do you want to be? Because we're the farmers of our own hearts. We're the caretakers of our own soil. So even if we are in a stage where there's rockiness or there's hardness of heart, with God's help, we can change that. How do we do that? Well, remember what makes the soil good, soft, deep, and clear. Soft, teachability. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you just said, there's a part of me that, God, I don't even know if I want you to be my king. I want to hold on to control, but I want to give my life over to you. It has to start there. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So have, is there a teachability there? Is there a humility there? If you are resistant to God, if you're doubting God because you have all these experiences, are you even doubting your doubts? Are you saying, wait a second, maybe my active, aggressive antagonism towards God and the things of God, maybe I should doubt whether those actually have a firm foundation. So are we soft-hearted? Are we trying to cultivate a soft heart? Number two, are we going deep? Are we going into Scripture? And specifically, are we going into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Are we exposing ourselves to the Gospels continually and saying, Jesus, drive this deep into my life. I don't want to be a superficial Christian. 
I don't want to be a person who kind of reads this stuff and says, oh, yeah, I've heard this story. Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, that's good. Or I'm just ripping through my daily bread devotional, just tick it off, and I go on with my life. Would you drive your word deep into me? And then number three, clear, are we weeding out distractions? I think it's a big one, especially for us today. There's a lot of things that can distract us, and they're good things. They're not bad things. They're not necessarily evil things. They're not sinful things. But if there are things that are keeping us, however good, from pressing deeper into the life God is calling us to or prioritizing the things that God calls us to prioritize, maybe we need to, not maybe, we do need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to weed those out? And for some of us, we need to get on that right now because the weed has started the choke. And for others of us, we're going to look at it and say, it's not really that bad. Like my garden's pretty good. There's a few weeds, but like I kind of have control of them. Don't, um, don't slip into that false sense of security. Allow God to say, look at this over here, and before it becomes a, um, a huge issue, let's work on this right now. Let's, let's go to counseling. Let's talk with a close Christian friend about this. Let's spend some time in confession. Let's take some practical action. Let's tweak some things here. Let's shift some things here so that we're getting rid of this weed before it chokes out the life of the kingdom. Let's pray. God, as we, as we sit underneath your word and underneath the power of this parable, may it do work in us, God. May it stir up places where we are hard-hearted in our own, um, in ourselves, God. May, may there be a fruitfulness that comes from this message, God, that as we reflect on it and pray about it and, and, and take with us that one thing, that one line, that um, one reflection that, Holy Spirit, you just seem to be impressing on our hearts even now that um, we would be fruitful. We want to be a fruitful people for you, God. Do your work in us, Holy Spirit, and help us cultivate good soil. In Jesus' name, amen.